Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. We know it is your heart to speak a word to your people. You spoke to John and called forth repentance from your people so long ago. Come now and speak a word in our hearing that will bring us to repentance and full conversion and deep love for you, Lord. Help us to prepare for you now as we await you coming again in great glory at the end of the age. Lord, please be with me as the preacher of your word. Uh, I am inadequate in every way to bring any message, Lord, unless you put your hand on me and use me. And, Lord, we are inadequate as a people in any way. We have no facility within ourselves, Lord, to understand and apply the scriptures in our own lives unless the Spirit of God makes it take root in us and bring forth fruit. And so come now, Lord, and do these things. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it, it's a strange thing that every year, uh, the second Sunday of Advent, this happens in our, in our context, in our tradition, every year, the second Sunday of Advent, we hear about uh, John the Baptizer. And it is so incongruous with what goes on in the culture around us this time of year as we're preparing for Christmas. On, on one level, you know, we actually kind of live in two different cultures. We have a, a Christian culture within the church where we, we have certain emphases, and then we have uh, what's going on around us. And so the season around us is sort of pre Christmas. And we, we do a lot of, uh, we, you know, at my house, as soon as, as, soon as the turkey comes out uh, on Thanksgiving Day, the Christmas carols come on. I admit it. I'm an Advent hypocrite. I really am. Because I want to hear me some, you know, I might have to even listen to Johnny Mathis. I don't know. It could happen. Yes. <laughs> so, who's that? <laughs> So, uh, so I know I'm living in that culture on one hand, but on the other hand, we hear these very startling uh, passages of Scripture like we hear from John the Baptist every year. And it's so uh, jarring because it's sort of like, you brood of vipers. You know, that just really doesn't go with Merry Christmas. Is it? You know, you brood of vipers, Merry Christmas. Yeah, that doesn't go well together. But we need to hear this passage of Scripture because, as we know, when we talk about Advent, we are talking about preparing for King Jesus to come at the end of the age in glory. And as we prepare for him, there are certain things that we need to do. And so John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so this morning, as we hear from John the Baptist, there's three sort of areas that I think we should focus on. We need to focus a little bit on the, the context, just how he showed up in the first place. What's the context around John and his preaching, the context of John the Baptist? And then I think we need to, to hear from John the Baptist or take a look at his methodology. So there's a, a broader context, and there's a methodology for John the Baptist's preaching. How did he do it? What was the way he presented his message? Because I I think that's significant as well. And then finally, we obviously need to take a look at the content of John the Baptist preaching. We need to see to actually listen to what he said. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to look at his context, the time and the place of John's appearing, and we're going to take a look at his methodology and we're going to take a look at the content of his preaching. And so what was the time and the place of John's appearing? Well, the scripture is clear that it says this, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. 
The word of the Lord came to John when he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It had been nearly 500 years since a prophet had arisen in Israel. And like rain after a long drought, verse 1 reminds us that John has come in a particular time and a particular place. John ministered from the desert. That's where he heard the Lord. And by all accounts, he had been living in the desert for most of his adult life. The desert, the the wilderness of Judah, I've actually been there. It's rocky, it's barren, it's hot. There's not a lot of vegetation. There's some scrub brush and things like that. Uh, Its most common inhabitants are, well, there's a monastery there, but other than that, there's like vipers and scorpions. You know, that's what you see a lot of in the Judean wilderness. I think that John's appearing, though, in the desert has significance. It certainly would have been significant for the first readers of Matthew's gospel. Because the people of Israel, for the people of Israel, the desert had always been the location of their most intimate encounter with God. Israel's most intimate encounter with God occurred in the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness on their exodus from Egypt, coming into the promised land. They're with God for 40 years in the wilderness. And during that time, God was right there with them. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was there hovering and his presence over the tabernacle. And his word came to his people in the context of the desert. The Torah, instruction from God, was given to Moses in their wandering in the wilderness. The desert had been the location for many prophets encountering God throughout Israel's history. You know, 1 Kings chapter 19, when Isaiah is out in the wilderness, uh, I'm not as Isaiah, I mean Elijah, excuse me. Elijah is actually the kind of the, the arch, archetypal prod, prophet, the archetypal prophet for Israel. And so even John the Baptist, part of the context is he comes in camel's hair with a big leather belt, and that indicates that he's coming as a type of Elijah to preach from the desert. Well, when Elijah was in the desert, what happened to him? Well, he heard uh, there was a whirlwind, and he didn't hear God in the whirlwind. He, he, there was an earthquake. He didn't hear God in the earthquake, but there was a still, small voice, and, I, and Elijah hears the still, small voice of God in the wilderness. John had heard God in the desert, and he proclaimed what he'd heard to the people. Now, I want to suggest to you that God still speaks to us in desert places. I think God still speaks to us in desert places. The desert lends itself to listening to God. It is a silent place. It is an empty place. It's an environment where we are especially sensitive to God. So what is your desert? That's what I want you to think about for a moment. What, where is, is there an empty place where you are very aware of your dependence on God? Where you are especially sensitive to God? Is there a place in life where the things that you depend on for stability and security are removed and you have a sense of vulnerability? Well, you know, for me, I, I really do experience this in the wilderness. I, I love, you, you know this about me, I love to hike. I love the Appalachian Trail. But if I can't get to the Appalachian Trail, just once a week, if I can get up to, um, to Stone Mountain or to Pilot Mountain or to Hanging Rock State Park and just be in the wilderness. I know that Highway 52 runs right by Pilot Mountain State Park, and you can hear it most of the time. But just being out of the context of, you know, surrounded with all the technology and all the trappings of modern life, and just being in the wilderness. That's where I hear God. I really do. In fact, uh, if I don't have that time each week of being away for about a half a day in the woods, I just don't feel like I've heard from God. 
But that's not the only place where we can experience, uh, where we can experience a desert place. There's the desert of uncertainty. There are those times of transition in our lives. We just had a new grandson, uh, 3.07 a.m. this morning. Uh, Tom, his, uh, it's Richard Thomas Hill Bora. You, you're important when you get four names. So he's, he's going to be a big dude. And, and he, uh, so he came early this morning at 3.07 a.m. And let me tell you what, there's going to be a time of transition, maybe a little bit of wilderness, going from two children un, uh, under four to three children under four years old for my daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, and, and for those other children. So having a baby, the birth of a baby, um, Change of career, children moving away from home can bring a, a time of transition that's kind of wilderness-like. Uh, our, our youngest daughter moved away a couple of uh, months ago, uh, far, far away from us, about 10 minutes down the road. And, uh, but the baby daughter, the last child, has left the house. And, uh, and so now her room, which normally, when she was living there, looked like an art supply store had exploded and, and that's what her room looked like. You open the door and it's kind of terrifying a little bit. But you knew that creativity was happening in there. Uh, and, the, and actually we found a lot of cups and plates and things that have been missing for a while after, after we cleaned that up. But, but now it's a guest room and it's empty and, and it's a little bit sad. And so those times of transition of, of like, what's my life really going to be about now? And this is a time we can hear from God. Losing a job can be a place where we where we are in a wilderness place. We, in our uncertainty, we can be very sensitive to God's voice because we recognize that our wisdom, our capabilities are insufficient. There's the wilderness of pain. You know, C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone. It can be emotional pain, relational pain. It can be physical pain. Pain can get our attention and make us focus on the things that God might be wanting to speak to us. There's the desert of meaninglessness. And this is something that I've seen happen in people's lives, especially for modern people, is that if they ever slow down and the hum and buzz, the hum and the buzz of modern technological life where we're completely and totally connected to everything everywhere constantly, and where the noise is always turned up, where we can always have Spotify or Pandora or our MP3 playlist. I don't know if anybody uses iTunes radio, but somebody probably does. But something, some kind of noise going on all the time. And if that's ever taken away and we have to deal with life that's really just lived for this present moment, we have to deal with life where it's just getting up, going to work, and coming home and trying to make enough money so that we can go on vacation maybe three or four weeks a year if we're lucky. And then what are we going to do? Oh, I'm going to retire so that the rest of my life, I can, you know, the remainder of my life, I'm going to work like that for, for the remainder of my life. And some people's greatest passion is I'm going to play golf. Now, folks, God bless you. I love, you know, I, I can't play golf. I don't understand it. I'm going to, I can't believe he's going to offend all the golf players this morning. But I mean, seriously, if that's the be all and end all of your existence, you might run into some meaninglessness. Or even if it's just getting the boat and I'm going to get a boat and sail around. But that's my life. 
when we realize that there is something lacking, something transcendent lacking from our lives, that can bring us to a desert moment. There's obviously the desert of failure. Plans and hopes and dreams come crashing down and they leave us with ruined expectations and a sense sometimes of worthlessness. And in those desert times, God can speak to us in our place. A place it can become a place of preparation. Now, there's also the method by which John brought this message. And his message, his methodology is important as he prepares us to encounter Christ. Here's just again Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and following. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God can from these rocks draw up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Merry Christmas. (laughs) John just presents a stark, stark contrast between salvation or judgment. There is no middle ground. His methodology is not to give us nuance. John is not concerned with nuancing his message. John is concerned about showing the gravity of the situation and the apocalyptic, earth-shattering moment that Israel found itself in. And it speaks to us perennially. We're still there today. His preaching is like the wilderness under the afternoon sun. There's just blinding white light or pitch black shadow, no shades of gray. Just a choice between eternal life or eternal fire, in John's words. John didn't coddle his listeners. He didn't tickle their ears with flattery or comforting words. He called them a bunch of snakes. And even in the first century, being called a bunch of snakes was not a compliment. Nobody, it didn't bless anybody's heart. Oh, that was such a sweet message. Thank you, John. They did not say that. You know, at times a brush fire in the desert would drive out vipers in terror, and that's John's preaching effect. It drove people to flee from the coming wrath. John's simple, clear message says, this is what is wrong, these are the consequences, and this is what you can do about it. For John, the, moment, the time was so critical, that moment was so uh, pivotal, that soft-pleasing words, soft-pleasing words were not going to do. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, I think we are in a similar moment in, in our Western society's uh, development right now, just like Israel was in that moment. I think we are in a time where it is such a pivotal, critical moment that soft-pleasing words... You know, positive, encouraging John the Baptist on K-Love. No, I don't think (laughs) soft, pleasing words, maybe not what we need most in this moment. We need to hear truth in terms that shakes us up a little bit. Now, I will tell you this. We know what kind of that kind of truth, preaching of truth brought for John you know, when, when truth enters the fallen world with that brazen starkness that John has, truth gets his head cut off. 
but John thought it was worth it to proclaim the reality of the moment that they were in, that there is a choice between judgment and salvation. Prepare to meet the Lord. And that brings us to the content of John's preaching. It's essential to hear his content because it prepares us to encounter Christ. John goes from the desert to the inhabited areas around the Jordan River with the message that he received, and it is a message of God's active and coming day of judgment, the wrath to come, and a corresponding call to repentance, this call, uh, this, this proclamation of judgment and a call to repentance. I listen to, um, well, I listen to a, a podcast every week that is about the lectionary text for the week, and it comes from a, um, from their self-described liberal Protestant university seminary, and, and they hate year A. This is the year we're in in the the lectionary cycle. There's A, B, and C. And in year A, we focus on Matthew. They hate it because it's so judgy. There's so much judgment. And we recoil from that. Many people today recoil from a message of division and judgment. But the reason we don't like to hear about judgment is this. I I, I thought about it this week. I, um, I don't even think it's... Here's what... I don't think it's that we... I don't think we're, we fear judgment. I don't think that's the reason why. I don't, I don't think people think it's going to happen. Here's why I don't think people want to hear about judgment. It's because we've never really encountered, for many of us, for many of us in our padded, privileged lives, we have never encountered real injustice. When you experience life-crushing injustice, you care about judgment. When we live privileged, padded lives, the message of judgment can be a little gauche, a little off-putting, a little strident. You know, I, John, um, we'd like to call you into the office and talk to you. We think you have some anger issues, John. <laughs> and so we, we hear those words as, as people living fairly comfortable lives, and they're incongruous. But let me tell you what, if your family has been slaughtered by ISIS... If your child has been abducted and sex trafficked, if you've had a family member disappeared by a tyrannical and unresponsive government, if you have civil authorities who can literally take your life with no repercussion and you live in a context like that, you know what you want? You want there to be justice. Because there is a gaping wound in the fabric of the universe, and the only thing that can fix it is a righteous God bringing judgment. We don't want to hear about judgment because we don't realize the gravity of the injustice in the world, and you don't have to travel very far beyond our borders to begin to encounter it. I think one of the th- it's interesting, one of the things that um, has changed in, for modern people is that we, um, uh, modern people fear death, but they don't fear death for the reasons that people feared death 300 years ago. Here's what modern people fear about death. We obviously don't want to, you know, nobody likes pain, and pain is often associated with death. We don't like it because it, it destroys relationships. It's painful to lose someone, and it's certainly painful to let go and, and say goodbye to all those people. Here's what modern people really fear about death. It is the slip into oblivion. It's the descent into nothingness. 
It is the yawning, gaping hole of the annihilation of consciousness. And that's what modern people are afraid of because modern secular people don't have a a context for anything after death. But prior to this period of the world, uh, this period in, in modern Western culture, people feared a coming judgment. And beloved, I want to tell you, that's what John is preaching about here. He's warning us about a judgment to come. And actually, when we do begin to face the reality of our own death, that there may be a judge that we have to stand before. And without Christ, we have no hope on that day. Without Jesus Christ between us and God's wrath, and I tried to get rid of all that God's wrath stuff, but then I read the New Testament again, and gosh, it's still there. I'm sorry. Because God is angry at the things that destroy his beautiful, good creation. And the only thing that stands between me and the wrath of God is Jesus Christ, who has borne God's wrath on my behalf. Tim Keller's new book, he writes in that book, a man who was dying of cancer once quoted T.S. Eliot to me, not what we call death, but what beyond death is not death, we fear, we fear. I asked him what he thought was beyond death. He answered that he had no idea, but he couldn't understand how his other secular friends could be so completely sure that there was simple non-existence. It's crazy, he continued. They mock people for betting their lives on the existence of God by sheer faith, and then they bet the ranch that afterwards there will be nothing, no judgment, nada. How can they be so sure of that? There was a pause, and I said, so you're having some regrets? He nodded emphatically and said that he had wronged many people and he had strong intuitions that somehow deeds of injustice and evil follow us. He knew there was no way to put things right before he died. Helplessness before inexorable death finally revealed his heart to him and he was, what, he was without hope. Without Christ between us, And God's judgment, we have no hope. John tells us that in order to flee from the wrath to come, we have to demonstrate genuine repentance, a turning away from sin. Repentance has to be personal for each one of us. We cannot count on what our fathers and our mothers have done before us to somehow count on our behalf. And so John writes this, or John speaks this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I've said it many times before, it's one of my favorite proverbs, just because your cat has kittens in the oven doesn't make them biscuits. Just because you were raised in church doesn't make you a Christian. We all need to come to personal faith in Christ, repentance of our sin and accepting of his saving work for us. It is possible to attend worship services your whole life and merely be inoculated by receiving just enough of religion, quote-unquote, to inoculate you against the real disease, so to speak. And good Bishop Ryle has this to say about John's preaching at this point. He says, look, this is just the teaching that we all need. We are, all, we are naturally dead and blind and asleep in spiritual things. We are ready to content ourselves with a mere formal religion and to flatter ourselves that if we go to church, we shall be saved. We need to be told that except we repent and are converted, we shall all perish. 
And genuine repentance is revealed when we truly turn away from sin, when we truly turn away from sin and self-directed living and turn toward God. It is revealed, that kind of repentance is revealed in actions, a directional change of life. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So therefore, listen, feeling sorry for my sin is not repentance. It may be a part of the road to repentance, but merely feeling sorry for my sin is not biblical repentance. Just talking about my sin is not biblical repentance. It may be a part of it, but that in itself is not genuine repentance. A changed direction in life reveals authentic repentance. We have to come to the point, and I, and it, I know that it is by God's grace alone that we get there, that we hate the sin that is killing us. We have to come to a point where we hate it so much we just don't want it in our lives anymore. And God's grace gives us the ability to turn around and turn towards his love. Finally, John's message literally was preparation for the coming of Messiah. He was, his whole ministry was pointed to Jesus Christ. And it's presented in terms of apocalyptic judgment, but it's still a preparation for good news because it prepares us to encounter Jesus Christ. We need to hear a word of judgment so that the word of grace makes so much more sense. Now, I think that there's a purpose for the law beyond just showing us our wickedness. I understand that, and I believe that. I mean, the law, yes, it is a map. It does show us a way of living a life that, 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 uh, that actually brings human flourishing and honors God. The law shows us the character of God. It acts like a window when we see into God's good character through the law. But, brothers and sisters, the law is also a mirror. And when we hear the word of judgment, we recognize that we are incapable of standing before a holy God. And it is not until we real, realize just how, just how angry God is at sin that we recognize just how wonderful his grace and his forgiveness are that, have been, that come to us at such great cost, the cost of the life of his own son. John's Preaching prepares us to encounter the good news of Jesus. As a church, we have nothing to say, and as a preacher, I have nothing to say that does not ultimately lead people to Jesus Christ. I am useless if I am not leading people to Jesus. Our church has no purpose unless it's leading people to Jesus. Preparing the people for the coming Messiah, John closes his message with this statement. More good news from John. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. For John, the coming of Jesus is a divisive moment. Wheat or chaff. We can reject him and be like the chaff sorted out from the threshing floor, or we can receive him and be like the wheat that is gathered up and cherished and brought into the storehouse. The scripture invites us to experience genuine repentance. John's message, the message of repentance, offers us a clear choice between the kingdom of God, eternal life, and the reality of judgment, judgment or salvation. And it, though it sounds, it does sound harsh to modern ears, it is the true precursor to salvation. John's message of judgment, repentance, and justice prepares us for the wonderful grace that is going to be revealed when Jesus comes. In the first time he appears, and again at the end of the age. 
And you know, brothers and sisters, we get to model that, that, prep, that preparation for the coming of King Jesus every Sunday that we come to the Lord's table. Uh, we come through confession and repentance. Every time we get ready to come to Holy Communion, we, those of us who can kneel, we get on our knees. If you can't kneel, that's okay. We, we, kneel, we bow the knee of our heart, as it says in the uh, prayer of Manasseh, I think. But uh, we, we, we bow down before a holy God, and we say to him, Yes, God, it was my fault. I did sin. I am so sorry. I turn away from it. I need to come to confession over and over and over again. So we prepare to meet Christ at his table by first coming through repentance and confession, receiving the good news of our forgiveness through Jesus, and then we encounter him at his table in bread and wine, his advent among us this morning. And so, brothers and sisters, I invite you during this Advent season while, uh, while we hear our, our Christmas music on the radio and on our streaming audio, uh, let's also remember to prepare with repentance and accepting the grace of God so that when Christ comes again in great glory, we might be ready to meet him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand with